Cottywampo with the Shadow People is a narrative podcast about friendship, magic, mystery, and the divine feminine. This podcast sometimes deals with topics of a sensitive nature, so listener discretion is advised. The widowed mother never hid herself behind a white veil, but she always pins a black veil to her hair. She was never given a ring by the man who loved her but she wears one on her left hand anyway. She considers herself a woman of fine moral caliber, but at one time, she cottywampled with the shadow people. Episode 11, The Widowed Mother. Mary grew up in a nice yet modest house on the south side of town. Her father worked hard in the factory, and her homemaker mother made a little extra income as a seamstress. They were not the richest family in the holler, but they were comfortable and happy. Mary was a sweet and pretty child. She had shiny black ringlets and big brown eyes that shone like honey in the sunlight. She was mild-mannered and always saw the best in people. And though she was plenty smart, her overly positive outlook made her a bit too trusting. The other school children would often take advantage of her naivete by playing mean pranks on her. Hardly a week would go by without someone putting a frog in her desk or tricking her into sticking her hand into a box of something disgusting. If it wasn't for her best friend, Diana, Mary would have been the victim of even crueler pranks. Mary and Diana met on the first day of school and quickly became friends, even though Diana was from the other side of town and from the other side of the proverbial tracks. People often wondered why a good girl from a good family would befriend a girl who was raised at the Chateau. But children never need a reason to make friends. It is easier for young ones to recognize their kindred spirits. Diana loved how kind-hearted and innocent Mary was. She loved the moon women who raised her, but the unfortunate consequence of being raised at the chateau is that she grew up a bit too fast. Minerva and the other moon women did their best to shield her from the lively parties that were thrown in the main hall and the salacious business transactions that took place on the fourth floor. But she was a smart girl, and by the age of eight, she had an inkling of what kind of home she lived in. And by age nine, the whispers around town confirmed it. She loved her shadowy family and never begrudged the ladies who read cards, leaves, bones, and stones, or the ladies who loved for a living. But still, it was nice to have a friend with whom she could just be a child. Mary loved how fun and brave Diana was. Diana protected her from the other children. The Chateau girl could turn any game they played into an epic adventure, At age 10, Diana taught Mary all the rules of the forest, and in return, Mary taught her how to make a daisy chain. 
They spent almost every day together and even had sleepovers when they could. Though, Mary's mother was insistent that they would only sleep over at their house, for obvious reasons. At age 11, the girls befriended the Morgenstern boys, Paul and Lucian. Paul would prove to be a wonderful addition to their little gang. However, Lucian would eventually start running with a bad crowd and stop spending time with his brother and the girls. As the trio grew closer, Mary noticed that Diana and Paul were growing close in a different way. At 15, both had confided their feelings for one another to Mary. She would never betray either of them by revealing their true feelings, but she persistently pushed them to be honest with each other. Both girls were growing into stunning young women, but Diana did not feel very beautiful. All the ladies in her family went gray prematurely. For a few years, Diana was able to hide the few gray hairs she had with hats, scarves, and carefully coiffed hairstyles. But by the time she turned 17, she had gone completely gray. And because of this, she refused to leave her room at the chateau for days. One day, Mary showed up and gently knocked on her door. Diana told her to go away through stifled sobs, but her friend would not leave. She walked in to see the beautiful moon woman lying face down on her bed with her long gray tresses draped over her. Mary lifted her off her pillow and hugged her gently. Paul will never love somebody who looks like me. Mary pulled back to shoot her a stern stare. Don't you dare talk like that! She pulled Diana towards her vanity and sat her down. She began teasing and braiding her hair. As she worked, she told her that she was as beautiful as a queen in any fairy tale. And queens should always be adorned with gold and silver. She told her that since her amber eyes glowed as if they were made of gold, it only made sense that her hair should be a silver crown. By the time she was done talking, Mary had piled her friend's hair into a stylish braided updo. She then decorated the braids with hyacinth blooms from the flower pot on the windowsill. After that day, Diana wore her silver crown proudly thanks to Mary's kind words and makeover. And soon, she was able to return the favor. After years of watching Diana and Paul dance around their feelings for each other, Mary finally found herself experiencing the same feelings when she met Christopher. Christopher was the town's handyman. They met when her father called him to fix their storm door. A job that should have only taken him half an hour ended up taking him nearly two because he found himself enthralled with Mary's sweet demeanor and conversation. He was so taken by her, he asked if he could see her again. She happily accepted his offer for a date, and after he left, she ran as fast as she could to the chateau. She barged into Diana's room, 
a little surprised, but not too surprised, to see Paul there, looking a little pink in the cheeks. Seeing Paul there did not deter Mary from her mission to tell Diana about her date with the handsome handyman. Her excitement devolved to panic as she started to fret about how she looked and what she was going to wear. Diana calmed her down and reassured her that they would find something. She shooed Paul from her room and then walked to her closet. She pulled out one of her more conservative dresses. It was a light pink A-line number with cap sleeves. She only wore it when she had to go into town to deliver moon water and pretend to be respectable. She laid it on the bed before sitting Mary down at the vanity. She applied powder to her face along with some blush and lipstick. It wasn't a girlish pink shade, but a ladylike rose. A sophisticated shade for a sophisticated lady, Diana said with a smile. She pinned her best friend's black ringlets in a half-up, half-down style, and then left the room so that she could dress in privacy. When she emerged from the room, Diana told her how beautiful she looked. She then escorted her out of the chateau and towards the ice cream parlor for her date. She watched Mary and Christopher for a few moments before giving them a little privacy. Mary and Christopher shared a strawberry milkshake and got to know each other. Mary learned that Christopher was originally from the holler, but had been living on the Mountain of Stone for a few years. He moved back to take care of his dying father. He'd figure he'd go back to the mountain after his father died, but he stayed because he liked the town and enjoyed his work as a handyman. He liked to fix things and help people. Christopher learned that Mary wanted to be a school teacher, but figured she would be a seamstress like her mother. She said that she always wanted to learn to swim, but was too afraid of the river on the west side of town. He told her that he thought she would make a wonderful teacher, and he told her that there was a beautiful crystalline lake on the Mountain of Stone that he would love to take her to. After a successful first date, the two were inseparable for one perfect year. They reveled together with the spirits at the crossroads. During the town celebration of the cold moon, they sat together, sang festive songs, and shared hot apple cider. They even went to a few chateau parties together. Christopher got along great with Diana and Paul, and the four of them would often go on double dates. When the girls were alone, Diana would teasingly ask what color her bridesmaid's dress was going to be. Sadly, the perfect year would end on a less-than-perfect note. The holler was once again feuding with the Mountain of Blood. The townsfolk had hoped it would not escalate to a conflict this time. But their hope was in vain. A battle was brewing on the mountain, and Mayor Zeke urged all the young men in town, even his young assistant Paul, to contribute their efforts to the fight. Mary and Diana saw their lovers off the day that they were to leave for the mountain. Most of the young men from town were leaving, except for Lucian. It had been speculated around town that he was able to buy his exemption. After all, he knew the price of everyone in town. Paul hugged Diana and told her that when he was elected mayor, he would find a way to end this feud. 
Christopher pulled Mary away for a private chat. Promise me you'll come back. Christopher answered by tying a piece of twine around her finger. Tell me I'll have a pretty fiancé waiting for me. She stared at the twine on her finger with tears in her eyes. It was just a piece of string, but to Mary, it might as well have been a silver band with a sapphire stone. She happily accepted his proposal with a kiss. As Mary and Diana watched Christopher and Paul leave town with the other young men, Mary looked up at her friend with a terrified expression. He has to come back. I know, dear. I wish they didn't have to go either. No, you don't understand, Mary said, placing a hand on her stomach and giving Diana a stern look. He has to come back. Diana's eyes widened in understanding and pulled her friend into a hug. He'll come back. I'm sure he will. But unlike some of the other moon women, Diana never had the talent for fortune-telling. Weeks went by before the young men came back. All of the older men, mothers, wives, and sweethearts came to greet the brave fighters and mourn the fallen ones. Mary and Diana waited hand in hand by the forest, watching and waiting. Eventually, they saw Paul break off from the crowd and run to them. He embraced Diana tightly. Mary touched his shoulder and asked him if Christopher was close behind. He pulled away from Diana and gave Mary a sorrowful look. No, she barely whispered as she saw the last group of returning young men walk out of the forest, carrying wooden coffins. She collapsed to the ground. Her friends fell with her and tried to comfort her. She wanted to scream. She wanted to cry. She wanted to crawl into her bed and never come out. But she couldn't. She was a little over three months along and she had to figure out a way to save herself from the inevitable scrutiny of the townspeople. She could not drink Minerva's Pennyroyal tea. She could not lose the only piece of Christopher she had left. She could imagine the disappointed look on her parents' face when they found out their daughter was to be an unwed mother. She briefly considered moving into the chateau. Many unwed mothers had before. But respectable girls from respectable families did not live at the chateau, and they certainly did not have babies out of wedlock. She was not as strong or as brave as Diana. She would not be able to handle the whispers or the dirty looks. She looked up at her friends with a look that was a mix of panic and grief. Her gaze lingered on Paul, and for a moment, bitterness overshadowed her other emotions. Why couldn't it have been Christopher who came back? Why does Diana get to keep her man? But she quickly pushed that thought away. Paul was her friend, and she would never wish that on him. But then another thought popped into her head. Why didn't his brother Lucian have to fight? He deserved to be in a wooden box more than Christopher or Paul. How much did he have to pay the mayor? She cursed his ability to make things happen for the right price. 
she was then struck with a thought. For the right price, could Lucian get her out of this mess? It was worth a try, wasn't it? Without a word, she broke away from her friends and ran towards the town. She ran until she made it to the door of the Morning Star Inn, the tavern that Lucian had taken over. He started there as a barback working for Mr. Beasley, until he was able to finesse the old geezer into selling him the business. She ran in and saw him standing at the till collecting wages from the previous shift. When he looked up, he was surprised to see his prim and proper childhood friend in his reputable house of ill repute. Mary, what are you doing here? I figured you'd be welcoming the boys back. But he stopped himself when he saw the tears in her eyes. His usual smarmy look was replaced by a look of terror. Is it Paul? She shook her head. His demeanor calmed, but he would not reveal the relief that he felt. He regained his smarmy composure. Well, I guess my dreams of being an only child continue to go unrealized. Christopher's gone. Oh. The kindest tone he could muster was one of polite neutrality. My condolences. I need to talk to you. He regarded her for a moment before telling her to follow him into his office. Once seated on the other side of his desk, Mary proceeded to tell him her entire situation. He listened intently and without judgment before saying, I sympathize with your plight, but I honestly fail to see where I can be of service. You'll have more luck with Minerva. She can boil you up some pennyroyal. Mary sobbed, wrapped her arms around her midsection, and shook her head no. And that's your prerogative, but truly I do not know how I can help you. Well, I thought maybe you could lend me some money to travel to the Mountain of Brass. I could take some courses at the college and come back in about a year. Living ain't cheap on the Brass. You want me to pay for your courses as well as your room and board? Uh, well... Mary realized she hadn't thought this through too well. I, I wouldn't actually take the courses. That's just what I would tell folks. If you could just loan me enough for travel and rent, I'll get a job and I can pay you back. When I come home, I'll just tell everyone that a schoolmate died in childbirth and I volunteered to take the baby. Morgan Stern smiled at her with genuine pity. And you think folks around here would believe that cock and bull story. And besides, working in your delicate condition will only get more difficult as the months go on. And once the baby's born, how is a single mother going to work hard enough to pay back her loan with interest? Interest? Mary, please. I'm not a charity. And the only reason I'm even entertaining your request is because you're my old friend. Mary felt as if she had been punched in the chest. She slumped over in her chair in defeat. Morganstern was silent for a long time before sighing deeply. There is something I could do. 
Mary's ears perked up, and she stared at him hopefully. I was going to have to get married eventually. People seem to trust you more when you're hitched, and that's why I had these papers drawn up in the event I found the right woman. He pulled the papers from his desk. There's no reason you can't be the right woman. Mary looked down at the piece of twine on her ring finger. She had believed that once the boys came back from the fight, she would be planning a wedding with the love of her life, not entering a marriage of convenience. I... I'll need time to think it over. Of course. I'll give you an hour. An hour? With all due respect, a woman in your delicate condition cannot afford to dilly-dally. Mary nodded and silently walked to the door. Before it could shut behind her, she heard Morganstern say, I'll be waiting here on bated breath. As she left the Morning Star Inn, she felt like her body had been broken into pieces. Her head felt detached, as if it was merely floating above the rest of her. Her heart was just gone, and her feet seemed to walk on their own. She did not know where they were taking her until she found herself at the chateau. Diana and Paul were sitting on the front porch as if they were expecting her. Paul rose from his rocking chair and offered it to the expectant mother. She accepted with a distracted but grateful thank you. As if on cue, Minerva came out with a piping hot cup of lavender tea. The older woman didn't stay on the porch very long. She always seemed to know what was needed of her and never overstepped. The three friends sat in silence for several moments before Mary squeaked out, I think, I think I'm going to marry Lucian. Diana and Paul sat dumbfounded as she explained her plight. They begged her not to go through with it. You can live here at the chateau. We can help you raise your baby, Diana offered. You know I can't live here. Mary instantly regretted her disdainful words once she saw the look of hurt and shame on her oldest friend's face. She tried to take it back, but Diana waved it off. Even though the words stung, she understood. Her friends racked their brains trying to think of an alternative, but they knew that this was the only way to save her reputation and keep her from being considered a pariah. All they could do now was walk with her to the Morning Star Inn. They each held one of her hands to keep her from falling to her knees. Once they got to the inn's front door, Mary squeezed their hands and they assured her that they would wait for her. She opened the door and let it shut behind her, but not before she heard Paul whisper something to Diana. She could not make out the words, but she noted his frantic tone. She walked slowly to Morganstern's office, as if the slowness in her steps could slow down or potentially stop time. He greeted her with a smile and held out a pen to her. Her body pushed her to grab the pen, but her mind was starting to drift elsewhere. She imagined it was Christopher standing before her. She imagined she was standing before the justice of the peace. These fantasies were the only comfort she could hold on to 
and she signed the contract. The contract stated that she agreed to enter into a legal marriage with Lucian Morgenstern until death, or at least until all the children that came from the Union move out of the family home. She winced at the thought of having children with anyone else but Christopher. The ink that spilled from the pen looked like molasses. Molasses that could stick to her, envelop her, and eventually drown her. Ah, don't look so dour, my dear. Married life won't be so bad. You and the little tyke will want for nothing. Mary placed a hand on her stomach absent-mindedly and said, Thank you, Lucian. I'm grateful for all that you're doing. I'm also grateful that we have the crossroads. At least my child can see their father during the hunter's moon. Morganstern laughed incredulously. Oh, Mary, you and our child won't be going to the crossroads. What? That will be far too conspicuous. I can't have the town suspect that I'm raising someone else's bastard. Mary's blood boiled at the word bastard. I can't do this. I can't keep my child away from Christopher's spirit. She reached for the contract, but before she could touch it, Morganstern snatched it up. If you intend to break the contract, I will not hesitate to take you to court. And I assure you, that will be an expensive and public spectacle. Mary stood there speechless and hopeless. Now run along and tell your parents that there will be a wedding on Friday. I'm sure they'll be happy to have such an accomplished son-in-law. Mary walked slowly out of the inn as if she had heavy stones tied to her shoes. Diana and Paul were waiting outside for her. She walked right past them, but they followed. Did you sign it? The wedding's on Friday. Maybe it won't be so bad. Maybe you'll bring out the best in him, Diana said, trying to make her feel better. One thing's for sure. You'll be the prettiest bride this town's ever seen. They walked her to the front door of her house, offering encouraging words. When she got to the top step of her porch, she looked back at them. Her warm brown eyes looked hollow. He called my child a bastard. What? Lucian called my child a bastard and said that he won't let us go to the crossroads anymore. My child will never know their father, and I'll never see Christopher again. And with that, she walked into her house. She couldn't bring herself to tell her parents about her upcoming nuptials. They would just have to be surprised on Friday. She locked herself in her room and cried herself to sleep. She did not leave her room for the rest of the week. She could barely eat, and what she did eat wouldn't stay down for long. On Thursday night, she laid out a black dress to wear for the ceremony. She refused to wear white for Lucian. Before she climbed into bed, she heard a pebble clack against her window. She looked outside and saw Paul motion her to come to the front door. She put on her robe and walked downstairs to open the front door. Forgive me for not knocking. I didn't want to wake your parents. What are you doing here? 
Paul straightened his posture to give himself a more professional appearance. I'm here on official business as the mayor's assistant. On behalf of everyone at City Hall, we would like to congratulate you on your recent nuptials. Recent? Yes, I'm sorry that the groom is not here to congratulate. I'm also here to deliver your marriage certificate. You must have left it at City Hall after you and Christopher eloped. Eloped? She grabbed the marriage certificate. It was dated the day before the young men went to the Mountain of Blood. Both of their names were forged. Paul and Diana were listed as witnesses. Did you get the Justice of the Peace to sign this? Yes, and he is now the proud owner of five jugs of the finest, most illegal Chateau Moonshine, so he won't be saying anything to anybody anytime soon. Paul reached into his pocket and handed Mary a small diamond ring. As Christopher's widow, you're entitled to this as well as his house and property. It's what he would have wanted. Mary was speechless. All she could do was hug her friend and squeak out a small thank you. Paul hugged her back. As he turned to leave, Mary asked, What about my contract with Lucian? Paul hesitated. His tight smile did nothing to hide the pain and sadness in his eyes. You don't have to worry about that anymore. Just, just remember that your friends love you very much. Mary spent the next month tidying up her new home. Paul and Diana helped her move some of her belongings in. She noticed that Diana was more quiet and standoffish than usual during the move, but she did not think about it too hard. She was starting to settle into this life. It was not the life that she wanted, but it was a life that she was grateful for. It was better to be Christopher's widow rather than Lucian's wife. One morning, as she walked to the chateau for her prenatal checkup with Minerva, she found herself stuck behind two slow-walking busybodies. She started to walk around them when she heard one of them say something quite alarming. Did you hear that that shadow woman got knocked up by Lucian Morgenstern? The second woman gasped and asked, Which one? That gray-haired girl, you know, the one that peddles the moon water? Well, I guess it only makes sense for a woman raised in a whorehouse to procreate with the proprietor of one. Mary could not believe her ears. There was no way it could be true. Diana would never do such a thing. The widowed expectant mother ran past the two gossiping women. She ran as fast as a nearly five-month pregnancy would allow. When she made it to the chateau, she found Diana preparing a batch of moon water in the kitchen. Diana looked up at her friend, smiled, and said that Minerva would be down shortly for her appointment. But Mary did not move to sit. She just stood in the doorway of the kitchen, staring daggers at Diana. Is it true? Diana did not play dumb. She knew exactly what Mary meant. She put a hand on her belly and said, Yes, um, yes, it's true. Looks like our children will grow up together just like we did. <laughs> Is it Lucian's? 
Diana, is it Lucian's? Diana took a deep breath. Uh, yeah. I was dropping off a package of moon water about a month ago, and I stopped into the Morning Star for a drink. Um, me and Lucian started talking, and one thing led to another, and you know how it goes. How could you do that? How could you sleep with him? Well, that's rich coming from you. You were going to marry him. All I did was spend the night with him. That's different. I was going to marry him because I did not have any other choice. You slept with him because it was Tuesday. You had a choice, Mary. You chose to save your precious reputation by marrying a despicable man whom you do not love because you thought it was better than being considered a wicked shadow person. Mary ignored the accusation. You knew he was going to keep my child from knowing their father. You knew he was going to keep us from the crossroads. You knew that he called my baby a bastard. You knew all that, and you still slept with him. How could you do that to me? How could you do that to Paul? I thought you two were in love. Well, I guess it's true what they say. Shadow people are incapable of love. Mary regretted the words as soon as they left her mouth but she knew she couldn't take them back. Diana narrowed her eyes, fighting back the angry tears. Mary, you have no idea what true love really is. Now run along, little girl. I would hate for the townsfolk to know that Christopher's respectable widow fraternized with shadow people. Mary stormed out. She would have all her prenatal appointments with the town doctor from now on. She would never step foot in the chateau again. She did not need Minerva the midwife. She did not need Diana the temptress. She did not need anybody. All she needed was a roof over her head, Christopher's ring on her finger, and the baby in her belly. She would get along just fine. Cottywample with the Shadow People was created by Shay Lee and edited by Jonathan Strickland. Special thanks to Lucas Ryan and Jenny Milam. Music by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech Music. Be sure to check out Moon Chasers, the other podcast I host with my friend and beta reader Jenny Milam and our other friend Ursula Undress. Moon Chasers is a podcast where we talk about tarot, movies, books, feminism, astrology, and all things witchy, sometimes with wine. You can also check out the podcast that my editor and dear friend Jonathan hosts with our other friend, Ariel Caston, called Large Nerdron Collider. Listen to two charming nerds talk about the geeky things that make their hearts happy. Also, I wanted to thank my lovely listeners for being so patient and supportive while we were on hiatus. My dear friend and editor, Jonathan, was recovering from a health scare, and we decided it would be best if he took January to rest. Hope you all had a wonderful new year and a happy in bulk, and thank you again for cottywampling with us. <laughs> <laughs>